I have spread my dreams under your feet. Tread softly, because you tread on my dreams. You tread on my Listening to Burdens, Episode 6, Delicate Hands. The other day I ran across a concept that I've been thinking about ever since. It's called the Dorian Gray Effect. It's named after the character in the Oscar Wilde story, a protagonist who never ages while a portrait in his house takes on the effects of his old age and life of excess until it becomes this hideous picture of a monster. In psychology, the Dorian Gray effect has to do with the impact of internal factors on your physical appearance. For instance, when people call you something, you start to, if you believe what they're calling you, you start to eventually look like what they are saying. Names are a great example of this. There was one experiment in which researchers found that people could match the right name to a face with more accuracy than would result from chance. Now this is really amazing to me. It seems to suggest that when our mothers name us, we start to look like our name. And we know that physical appearance has more to do with nurture than nature. I mean, it has, it has more to do with the way you carry yourself, your posture, your gait, your uh, facial expressions, and, and the way you respond to things in life, the way you style your clothing and your hair. All of those things have more to do with the way you look than genetics and biology. But this idea that people could call you something enough times that it would change the way that you look, it, it really got my wheels spinning. I mean, just think about somebody entering this life with so many disadvantages. Maybe they don't look the way you're supposed to look or they're born into a place that you're not supposed to be born into and others make judgments about them because of that, tell them they're of no value, name them with worthless names that they believe, and then they become even more dejected and sink even lower on the social scale. It's, it's a really scary thing. We have to be careful what we call people. You know, they tell us you can't judge a book by its cover and not to make judgments according to appearances. It's amazing after all this time and knowing this wisdom, we're still judging people on something that is literally skin deep. This story asks questions about superficial judgments and asks us to dig deeper to look for the true value of a human being. I hope you enjoy it. 
delicate hands. The door of the house burst open, and a chair's legs scraped the floor board by board, as though some hidden hand were pushing it, but it was only the wind playing its usual tricks, mastering invisibility and throwing rooms into disarray. The true cause of the disturbance was a real hand, more frightening than an apparition, attached to a muscular arm, and the arm was attached to a man matching the description of the arm. A woman who had been sitting in the corner by the fire rose, startled. Before the intruder stormed in, she had been waiting alone in the single room of her tidy house, thinking it was the one place where she could feel safe. The man could not have known this, because his sudden appearance startled her into motion, and now her body tensed into a posture very familiar in those parts, one signaling fear and an expectation of death. If you scream, I'll knock you down so hard you'll never make another sound, snarled the man. The woman nodded, frozen somewhere between sitting and standing. Sit down. You're making me nervous. The man closed the door hard, shaking the house, and came fully into the room, his bulk almost filling the walls with shadows. He doused the fire using a basin of water that had been sitting on a table, and in an action seeming too smooth and graceful for a man of his size, he pinched out the flames of all the woman's candles. The only light coming into the room now shone from the skull of the moon up above, most of which succumbed to limb and leaf before finding the windows of the house. Staying low, the man peered out the front window. Say a word, and I'll kill you, he said. Two miles away, a company of men followed a thin trail, barely traceable in the moonlight. Keen, the one in charge, was tracking a big raider named Olin. It's faint through here, said Keen. Too well traveled, hard to pick out. We could be following my grandmother for all I know. Because he survived the wars of Jehuda in the Megiddo Plains, Keen had gained a reputation for himself in those parts as a skilled fighter and an expert tracker. The citizens in town thought highly enough of him to appoint him town guardian. It was not as exciting as battle, but it had its moments. This manhunt, for example, was the kind of adventure Keen lived for. Shia, the old merchant, had summoned Keen after discovering Olin in his shop. It took some time to get the men together, and by the time they followed the trail out of town into the woods, he must have gained a good mile or two on them. But Keen and his men rode horses, and their prey was on foot. It's too bad about the kid, said one of the men. Quiet. We can't think about that right now, said Keen. I saw him. Shut up, Rowan. I saw him laying on his face. It wasn't natural. I never seen a kid that way. Shut up, will ya? Look, the trail leaves the road here. The woman sat in the corner of the dark cabin, twisting a piece of cloth in her hand that, until a few minutes earlier, had been a garment for the child of a friend. She said nothing. 
She studied the hulking presence at her window. He seemed oblivious to her scrutiny, consumed by whatever was going on outside. My husband will be home soon. The big man kept looking out the window. She could hear his heavy breath still trying to catch up from the exertion of distancing himself from an unknown pursuer. Soldiers? Wolves? Bandits? From the look of him, she decided it had to be the authorities. He had stolen something or killed someone, and now he was in her house, holding her hostage. His oily smell repulsed her. She watched him crouching low under the window, waiting as if he were in his own house. What made him think he could invade her home like this? It wasn't much, but it was tidy and in good repair. Then in comes this hairy oaf, nearly tearing the door off the hinges, infecting her space with his filthy giant body. The house wasn't much, but it was hers. He had no right to bring his trouble here. Her anger overcome her fear, and she said, Did you hear me? I said my husband is coming. I heard you, he croaked. Why do you think I'm staring out this window, crouching like a dog, doing his business till my legs fall asleep? If your husband comes, I'll know about him before he knows about me. He stole a quick glance at her as she said this. It was dark, but she could make out an underbite in his jawline and large, round eyes. The eyes didn't pause long over her, but they made her uncomfortable. What do you mean to do with me? The man let out a bitter blast of air. Lady, you're just something I tripped over on my way out. What's your name? she asked. Olin, he replied with a grunt. He didn't ask her name. The woman glanced across the room, looking for a distraction, any excuse to break the silence. She looked from the dishes neatly stacked on shelves by the table to the rug at her feet to the firewood piled next to the sizzling hearth, to the empty bed in the corner. She scanned the big man who had invaded her home with her eyes and tried to penetrate the darkness to learn something that might help her survive. Finally, she spotted a bloodstain on the sleeve covering his left forearm. You're hurt. It's nothing, he said. Banged it on something a while ago. She got up from her chair and rummaged around in a trunk at the foot of the bed. Go back to your chair, Olin growled. That cut needs to be dressed. I'll worry about that. Get out of that trunk and sit back down. I have some clean strips of cloth in here somewhere. It would be easier to find them if you hadn't put out the candles. Her back was turned to Olin as she felt through the trunk. Good or bad, a man was hurt and it was her duty to tend to him. Besides, maybe she could get a closer look at him while dressing his wounds. Olin left the window and grabbed her, pulling her up roughly by the arm. Let go of me, she screamed. Olin's hand covered her mouth to muffle the shouting. His rough index finger blocked her nostrils and wrapped around her upper lip while the last two fingers cradled her chin. He smelled like something unpleasant she couldn't quite place, and she couldn't figure out why he smelled that way. He dragged her back to her chair with the ease of a child swinging a doll by the arm, while the woman kicked and beat him with her fists, 
His body felt like a sack of flour, and the blows smarted when she hit him, but she kept pounding. Olin shoved her roughly back into her assigned seat, still gripping her mouth with his huge mitt. She was starting to suffocate. I'm going to remove my hand from your mouth, he rasped. But if you scream, I'll cover it up again, and this time I won't let up till you quit breathing. She nodded as convincingly as she could. Olin let her go. She gulped air but kept quiet. He went to the trunk and began tossing things out using only his good hand. He hurt worse than he let on. Olin found some rags and wrapped the wound over the shirt and went back to his post at the window. After a few minutes of silence, the woman spoke. Your best chance is to turn yourself in. She rubbed her shoulder above the arm Olin used to jerk her back into her chair. Do whatever you want with me. You will not get away. The man who follows wickedness is followed by the Avenger. Everyone is followed by someone. That's what my father always said. You and your high and mighty father keep your mouths shut. My father, the woman said as she mustered indignation, is dead. One down, one to go, said Olin. For a moment, the woman forgot the danger she was in and the strength that had swept her away from the trunk like a leaf in the wind. How dare you disgrace the good name of my father? Take it back, she said. You have no right, no right. My father was good and true. You have no right. She spoke to the enormous back at her window. My husband is coming. The Lord sees and repays. You'll get what's coming to you. She shook her head. Tears streamed down her cheeks, but her jaw was set in determination. No right, she said. The sound of another rider penetrated the darkness. Keen reined in his horse, the others falling in behind him. They were close to Jalen's Pass, the trail that cut through the woods from town. Had they been making a straight cut through the woods toward the barley fields, they would have taken the well-worn pass, but they left the main road a long time ago, following the raiders' meandering flight. The rider rushed past them, and they immediately fell in behind him. It was too dark to tell anything, just that whoever they followed was in a hurry. Keen spurred his horse and pursued the other men fast behind him. The unknown horseman rode like the devil was after him, and it was all they could do to keep up. Whoever it was, he was bent on his destination, oblivious to the company of men pursuing him. Keen pushed his horse harder, trying to come even with the rider. The path was just wide enough for two riders to pass one another. Keen was gaining on him, but his men were falling behind, disappearing into the darkness behind him. No matter. He would apprehend the rider, grab his reins, and within seconds of stopping him, they would catch up. But he didn't have to force him to stop because when he came into the man's peripheral vision, the rider pulled hard on the reins, bringing his horse to a standstill in a cloud of dust. He stopped so abruptly, Keen passed him by a few feet and had to double back to meet him. As he neared the rider, he could see his face in the moonlight and recognized him immediately. Levi, is that you? What are you doing out here in the middle of the night? 
Levi blinked sweat from his eyes. He was a twitchy sort of fellow, a loner who kept to himself in the woods with his wife. I could ask you the same question, he said, looking suspiciously at the town guardian as the rest of the men caught up. Levi's horse was breathing hard and foaming with sweat. Keen surmised he had been riding hard for a long time. That horse looks like he's about to drop. You coming from town? Why did you wait so late to head home? You could have spent the night in town and headed back tomorrow. My wife, she doesn't like to be alone out there. It's just her out there on Jalen's barley fields. I set out for town this morning with a load of barley and promised to return before dark. Took longer than I expected. Keen-eyed the sweating horse. Levi had almost run it to death, and blood ran from a cut on its left flank. Some men are so afraid of their wives. Keen himself never married. A soldier didn't have time for family. Besides, he had grown accustomed to making his own decisions, and liked it that way. We're tracking a big raider named Olin, Keen told Levi. He stole a bag of silver Shia the merchant was keeping for Jalen in town, killed some poor kid, a boy. Levi turned white and swallowed. God help us. How awful. Whose boy was it? Someone I know? Don't know, said Keen, watching Levi. How do you know it was him? Olin, I think you said? Shia walked in and saw him holding the boy, limp as a rag. The monster threw him down and ran off. I got this posse together as fast as I could, but he still got a good head start on us. We should be closing in on him. My house is just ahead, said Levi. You don't think he would hurt my wife. After what he did to that poor kid, anything's possible. We're wasting time. Come on, we'd better check out your house. It's secluded just your wife in there. That's where I'd hide out if I were him. Olin's arm was throbbing. He caught it on the doorframe of Shia's place after the old merchant walked in on him. He had thrown the boy down in a panic and tore his forearm on the doorframe trying to get out. He hadn't noticed it before, but now the pain was coming in waves. He had wrapped the rags around it, and that helped a little, but he had not had time to dress it properly. Pain hammered the dirty, sweat-caked wound, and it felt like a family of rats had gnawed out rooms for themselves and taken up residence in the meat of his arm. He hated he had brought the woman into this. What else could he have done? His pursuers were on horseback. He couldn't outrun them. By the time he reached the house, his heart felt like it would explode. He had hoped he had come upon an abandoned shack, but no such luck. The woman stared at him from the corner by the fireplace. He knew that look, a mixture of judgment, contempt, fear, and revulsion. It didn't matter. This would all be over soon. Olin always knew it would end this way. All his life he had been blamed for everything. Look at that face, they would say. Isn't it obvious he did it? When he was about ten, some boys stole a little girl's rag doll. They hung it from the clothesline outside and set it on fire. There was no investigation. Nobody asked any questions. Everybody knew it was Big Olin. His mother made him swallow the truth and apologize. The girl glared at him, hating him just like the woman hated him now. 
His father beat him with a cane rod until whelps rose up on his flesh. He insisted he was innocent and begged them to believe him, but they ignored his protestations. He was too big and ugly to be innocent. He looked exactly the way a boy who burns little girls' dolls for fun should look. So they ostracized him, beat him, cursed him, and left him out. This was the constant cycle of his life, and it was happening again. He knew it would end this way. What did you do? The woman's voice interrupted the painful drumming in his arm. Did you hurt someone? Did you kill somebody? No, not that you would believe me. Why should I believe you? You break into my house, twist my arm out of its socket, and shout orders at me, and I tried to help you. Help me? Sure. I tried to dress that wound, didn't I? But an evil man will shun kindness and abuse, knowing no difference. You want to help me, lady? Shut up. No, I won't shut up. You have no right. This is my house, and I will do as I please. Olin laughed. You are stubborn. I give you that, lady. Look at you sitting there, straight as Aaron's rod. And it's Rebecca. My name's Rebecca. Rebecca? Yes. Please shut up. Olin looked out the window. They should have caught up to him by now. Something must have slowed them down. Where is your husband, anyway? he asked. You said he's coming. It'll be daylight in a few hours. Where is he? He had to deliver a load of barley in town. He's one of the managers for Jalen, who owns the barley fields. He left with a cart early this morning. He should have made it back by now. Something held him up. Things happen. He'll be back any minute now, and you'll wish you had never found this house. She said this with a proud air, as if she were the queen of a palace and not a poor field manager's wife held hostage in her own one-room shack. You'll be sorry. My husband will return with help, and they will punish you for what you did to me. He'll come. You'll see. He's smart and capable. He started from the bottom with nothing, unlike a lot of other men. But things will get better. Just the other day, he said, Becca, things are going to change. We'll get out of this shack and out from under Jalen and start a new life. Good for him, said Olin. You never answered my question. What question was that? asked Olin. Her talking annoyed him, but it kept his mind off the pain in his arm. What did you do? Just so your story's straight with the others, I stole a bag of silver and bludgeoned a little boy to death with my bare hands. The words caught her breath, and her eyes widened in panic. I didn't do it. Why should I believe you? Why shouldn't you? Because, well, it's obvious. That's why you're here. You, because I'm ugly? asked Olin, turning to look at her. No, because you broke in here and are holding me hostage. Just shut up, please. Look, give me one good reason to believe you, she argued. You can't do that, can you? Just one reason for me to consider your innocence. Olin slumped into the corner. His arm was killing him. 
This afternoon, I paid the merchant a visit. Sometimes it gives me work moving heavy bundles and things like that. When I arrived, the door was half open, but no one seemed to be in. I thought maybe the old man forgot to lock up, or maybe he finally keeled over. Olin swallowed hard before continuing. I went inside to take a look. The boy was on the floor, just laying there. I wasn't sure he was breathing, so I got down on my knees to take a closer look, but even on my knees I was too far away. I couldn't get close to him on my knees like that without laying on top of him, so I picked him up, held him. He was so light, like a sleeping lamb. His body was warm, but he wasn't breathing. Then I felt something wet on my arm, and I realized his head was bleeding. That was when I realized the floor was covered with blood. So much blood. He was such a little thing. Olin stopped talking. He was fighting his emotions, struggling to go on. Before I had a chance to get help, they caught me holding the boy with him, bleeding all over me like that. I knew they'd think I was the one who'd done it. Knew they'd blame me. I dropped him and ran. Dropped him in the dust like a sack of figs. I was so scared. Oh God, I'm so sorry. He was laying there on his face. Oh God, forgive me, Lord, I'm so sorry. Olin buried his face in his big hands and cried, heaving and sobbing in the dark corner of the room while Rebecca watched him silently. I might as well turn myself in. I'll be stoned for sure. No one will believe me. No one has ever believed me. After a few silent moments, Rebecca spoke. The boy. Who was he? How should I know? He looked like one of the field workers' kids. Black hair, about ten. He had this tooth hanging off a leather strap around his neck. Rebecca let out a gasp and clutched her chest in the same place where the tooth had hung from the boy's neck. It was a wild ox's tooth, she said, staring past Olin. My father had a collection of them he pulled out of a skull he found on a hunting expedition. After he died, I didn't know what to do with them. I had Levi drill holes through some of them and made necklaces for some of the boys, the ones who came around. You knew him? Olin asked. I couldn't have children, she said. The boys, they came to see me. I gave them things. You gotta believe me, Rebecca. I didn't kill that boy. I had no reason to. Rebecca kept staring past Olin like she was somewhere else. Olin wondered if maybe she might believe him. But suddenly she said, You stole the money, and that poor boy caught you. You thought you could kill him and get away with it. No, Rebecca. Thought you could take the easy way instead of working for a living. If it wasn't you, who else? I don't know. Look, I ran here empty-handed. If I did it, wouldn't I have the money? Where's the money? Do I look like I've got silver on me? You buried it somewhere. How should I know? Olin peered through the thinning veil of pre-dawn light at Rebecca and shook his head. I didn't do it, he said. By the time Keen and his men came to the house... They had been tracking Olin half the night. The sky was beginning to gray, 
but the house sat quietly in the valley. It was cold and dark, and no one stirred. Keene directed the men to pull up 100 yards short of the house so they could watch from the trees without being spotted. What do you think? he asked Levi. I don't know. It looks quiet, but there's no smoke coming out of the chimney and no light from her fire. It's cold. She would have a fire. Maybe she's not home. She's home. Where else would she be? Call her. But what if she's in there? Won't we blow our cover? Maybe we blow our cover. Maybe she's knocked out cold on the ground. Maybe she's asleep and he's not even in there. I can't make the call on what to do next until I know what's going on in there. Call her. Levi looked around at the other men. Everyone seemed to agree. Rebecca, are you all right? No one answered. The men sat still, listening to the steady hum of insects. Rebecca, I'm with some men out here. There's a raider on the loose, a man named Olin. We followed his trail to the house. Call back to me and let me know you're okay. What's going on in there? Inside, Olin gave Rebecca a look of resignation and started to get up. Wait, she whispered. Let's see what they want. What do you think they want, Olin rasped. They want my head on a spike. That's what they want, and we might as well give it to them. Just wait. I'm here, she called to the men outside. Olin is with me. Rebecca, Levi screamed. Are you okay? Has he hurt you? I'm okay, she replied. Forgetting how adamant Olin had been about staying in her chair, Rebecca made her way to the window, crawling over the big man to get a good view. Olin didn't even look at her now and stayed slumped in the corner. Move over, she said. I want to get a better look. In the gray light of dawn, Rebecca could make out five riders. She recognized her husband and Keen, the town guardian. Her husband had dismounted and was straining his eyes to see what was going on in the house. Something wasn't right. Rebecca studied her husband's exhausted horse. What was missing? She took a deep breath to calm her nerves and concentrated. What's happening? asked Olin. What do you see? Shh! I'm trying to think. Rebecca carefully scrutinized every detail outside her window. Keen, his men, the horses, and her husband. Something was wrong. Then it came to her. She shouted, Levi, where's the cart? Cart, he asked. What cart? The cart you used to take the barley into town for Jalen. You always bring it back with you. Keen looked at Levi and waited for an answer. I left it in town. What's going on in there? What's he doing to you? Are you safe? He always brings back that cart. Rebecca said to herself. Olin was now watching her with interest. Why would he leave it in town? He would just have to waste a trip going back to get it. It doesn't add up. Rebecca, what's happening in there? Levi called, a little less forcefully than before. Levi, what's gotten into you? asked Keen. You're sweating worse than that horse. Are we going to go in and get him, or what? asked Levi. 
He was pacing back and forth like a caged bear, and he looked like he was about to grind his teeth to dust. I don't think that's a very good idea right now, Levi. Why not? Because your wife is in there, and there's no telling what that big fella might do. Rebecca, still watching out the window, spoke to Olin. Listen to me carefully. Here's what I want you to do. You go out that back door there. It's still dark enough that you might be able to get away. What? Olin's tear-streaked face filled with childlike bewilderment. Rebecca took his chin between her thumb and forefinger to focus his attention. Olin stared back at her with a confused expression, as if he didn't know how to react to the touch of someone's hand. I know you didn't hurt that child, she said. They just think you killed him because you look mean, but you're not. You don't hurt people, they just hurt you. But a minute ago you said I killed him. I know you didn't because I know who did, she said. Now, go while you still have a chance. Olin ran out the back door, and Rebecca returned her attention to the men in front. The long night had exhausted their strength. They shifted their weight from one leg to another, unable to stand still, while the horses snorted and stamped the ground. Keen was questioning Levi, who seemed incapable of making eye contact. Just why did you leave that car in town? Why does that matter, screamed Levi. There are more important things to consider right now. Strange that we bump into you like that in the middle of the night, Keen said, without your cart. My wife is trapped in that house with a cold-blooded killer, and you're interrogating me about an old farm cart? I'll show you where it is tomorrow. While Keen distracted Levi with his interrogation, Rebecca, the former hostage, stormed out of the front door of the house, walking fast with long strides toward the inattentive men. Levi was saying, Right now, my only concern is how we're going to get her out of there. Well, Keen said, looking toward the house, I think you can take that burden off your mind. Levi and the rest of the men followed Keen's eyes and saw, to their amazement, Rebecca walking toward them, alone. Where's Olin? How did you... asked Levi. Rebecca slapped her husband hard on the cheek. Why didn't you bring that cart home, Levi? Why did you leave it in town? And why were you coming home so late? Rebecca, Levi protested. You know, sometimes it takes longer to deliver the barley. The line at the scales was longer than usual, and things are going to change, you said. We're going to have a new life. Just how were you planning to make a new life for us, Levi? How was it going to get better? Becca, you know how hard I've been working, how hard we have worked. I've been saving, that's what I meant. Soon I will have enough to buy a field of my own, that's all. You haven't saved anything. You spend every shekel we earn as soon as we get it. Becca, Levi said as he held her shoulders, you know how hard I work. I do it all for you, for us. I'm building us a better life. You killed that boy, Levi. I don't know why or how, but you killed him. You. I had a bad feeling when you didn't come home tonight. I told myself this was a righteous home, despite how poor we are, 
that the Lord will bless us one day, that I am your wife and it is my duty to trust you. I told myself that you were an honest man, but you killed that boy. I don't know why. Maybe you waited outside Shia's shop until he left, thinking nobody was in there, and that poor child caught you in the act of stealing. I don't know, but you killed him. She beat Levi on the chest with both fists. You're so afraid people might find out who you really are. They may not know, but I do. You're a murderer. I'm just glad my father died before he learned the truth. Levi's face hardened. He stared at his wife for a long time while the others waited for his response. Finally, he twisted his mouth to speak. Your father was a cheap, common field laborer who left us with nothing but hard work on someone else's dirt. All I ever hear is, my father did this, my father said that. You talk as if he owned the town. He didn't own anything. He was nothing but a pitiful, borderline beggar. Don't you see? I'm working to build us a life where we stand on our own two feet without having to take orders from Jalen or anybody else. Can't you see, Rebecca? I do it all for us. A good life. That doesn't just happen. You don't just pray, God give me food to eat and it appears on the table. Your father never understood that. Well, he wasn't a thief. And he wasn't a murderer like you. Levi shifted his gaze to Keen for support, but Keen seemed to be waiting to see how this was going to play out. Listen, I'm not a murderer. It was an accident, okay? I never meant him any harm. I overheard Jalen giving the boy instructions yesterday about taking silver to Shia's for safekeeping until it could be delivered to some rich landowner so Jalen could purchase another one of his fields. What is he going to do with another field? I'm the one who's been breaking my back all these years. That money is rightfully mine, so I took it. I delivered the barley, hid the cart in town somewhere so that I could make a quick getaway if necessary, and waited until Shia left the money alone in the shop. I had no idea the boy was still there. You have to believe me. When he saw me taking the silver, he surprised me, tried to stop me. I reacted, knocked him away, and he fell against the table and hit his head. I, I must have hit him too hard. I didn't mean to kill him. You have to believe me. As the sun broke the horizon, the dawn light revealed Levi's twisted face. Keen's strong grip held his elbow, and the tops of the men's heads hung off their shoulders like wilted flowers. How do you like your new life now, Levi? Rebecca asked as Keen helped him onto his horse. Then the men led him back into town, where he would await trial for the boy's murder. Rebecca found the tent where Keen said it was, behind the tanners, under a huge poplar tree. The tall grass around it swayed in the breeze, and a large wooden chair set by the opening in front. She carried a bag and a skin filled with water. She found Olin inside the tent, lying on his back on a quilt spread over the ground. The daylight gave her a chance to see him in detail. Even in repose he looked menacing. Black curls stuck to his forehead, and his swollen eyes stretched their lids to their limits. She thought about how those eyes shied away from her the night before, 
Was he hoping for some unspoken agreement that if he did not look too long at her, maybe she wouldn't look at him? Olin snored loudly. Rebecca had heard him from outside the tent. He did not stir when she entered, although she made as much noise as she could by opening the tent flap and rattling the skin in the basket, hoping to wake him with her movements. She knelt beside him, hesitated, then dropped her hand lightly on his damp shoulder. The bulging eyes pushed through their lids at her touch. He coughed and said, It was your husband, wasn't it? Yes, she said, my husband. I never thanked you for believing me. Rebecca said nothing. Instead, she opened her bag and pulled out some clean rags while humming a tune she remembered from childhood. She carefully unrolled the filthy dressing Olin had applied the night before and dabbed his forearm with water so that she could peel the shirt away from the wound. When she removed the crusty sleeve, his arm ran with fresh blood, and she poured the water over it and blotted it with one of the rags. Then she wrapped it with clean dressing. When she finished treating the wound, she held it gently in her delicate hands, her human hands, to see if the touch could cure the throbbing pain. You've been listening to Burdens. If you like what you heard here, go to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. That helps get the word out about what we're doing here. Also, for more information, visit drewkaiser.com.